Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In 4 weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose 1 to 2 pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. featuring tales to terrify, crime city central, and protecting project pulp. Everyone has a story in the district of wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Show 302. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Show three hundred and two. We have a two-part story coming up this week, this week and next week. It is by Ian Seals. But I'll tell you what else is coming in the day show. We have a science news with Mr. JJ Campanella. Then we've got a little introduction. I'm letting out Adam from who is the assistant editor over at Starships over here. Adam's going to have a little talk about this this week's story and next week's story just to give you a little kind of introduction to it. Then like I say we have the main story which is part 1 of Drift on the Sea of Rains by Ian Seals. Then at the end we have sci-fi soundtracks by David Reeklin. There you go. That is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So let's kick off straight away with Mr. JJ Campanella. Jim sir. Greetings and scintillations my fabulous crontaculous listeners. And welcome to this August 2013 science news update. I'm your host for this mesmerizing science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. You will have to forgive my voice tonight, folks. I am just getting over some tropical disease which has held me in its grip for the last 5 days. I think it's a tropical disease, although my doctor assures me it is not malaria. because I have just returned from a science conference in Florida. Florida is a lovely place, but not necessarily in the middle of July with the temperature hovering near 100 degrees and the tropical sun beating down on your head. And of course, for the several days I was at the conference, I never needed to see the sun at all if I wanted. The conference rooms were in my hotel, which also had a Starbucks and several restaurants, so who needs tropical sun? 
I blame Florida for my flu, whose highlight was an almost 104-degree temperature at one point. But a colleague of mine pointed out that international meetings are like lotto for viruses from all over the world. Unfortunately, I think I won the pot this year. So the conference was the 40th annual meeting of the Plant Growth Regulation Society of America. Now, from the sounds of this title, you would expect the topics of the symposia at the meeting to be abstruse, theoretical, and having no real applications in the real world. Well, there you'd be wrong. At this particular meeting, I usually stick out like a sore thumb. The plant physiology work that I do involves a very specific family of genes that control a certain plant hormone, and the evolution of that family from early non-vascular plants through flowering plants. Now that is abstruse and hypothetical. Just about every person at this plant growth conference was interested in a practical agricultural or horticultural end by the applications of their research. What kind of applications? Well, the most popular seemed to be thinning of fruit from plants by chemical or hormonal induction. You see, the reason you get big, juicy cherries or apples or pears is that fruit trees are thinned out, so instead of a tree needing to feed a 1,000 apples, which all would remain small, the fruit is thinned to 500, and they all will mature to a reasonable size and be ready for market. I heard three different talks about how to thin apples chemically. More on the chemicals later. Another application, well, chemical hormones can be used to force plants to flower and fruit. This is an economic boon to plants like pineapple that normally only flower and fruit every couple of years. Chemical treatments are also used now in places like Brazil to get plants like apples or cherries that need cold to set fruit and the increasing global temperatures that are being observed throughout the world. If you're an apple tree grower, beginning to see a pattern here, and you want to ensure that the trees that you planted two years ago fruit, then you need to plant trees that have been bred by hormone treatment to have extra side branches from which all that fruit will originate. If you want to keep your oranges from cracking as they grow, there's a spray for that. If you want your strawberries a brighter red, there's a spray for that. If you want to induce your apples or pears to mature faster, there's a spray for that. If you want larger tomatoes or oranges, there's a spray for that. If you want your fruit trees to be dehydration tolerant, yes, there is a spray for that. I think you are beginning to get my point. Now let me make something clear. I am not against the treatment of plants and trees with hormones that are already native there to trigger and induce effects. There are dozens of plant hormones, including hormones called auxins, gibberellins, abscisic acid, ethylene, and brassinosteroids that have been known for decades. And all of these are already found in plants, and when added at the right concentration, they can safely trigger many of the useful biological reactions I have just listed without harming humans or the environment. My problem is with all the laboratory-synthesized biochemicals that many agrochemical companies are pushing that are uncharacterized in their long-term effect or in their effect on insects and other animals in the environment. There are a huge number of those. 
and I learned about many of them as I sat and listened to a myriad of seminars. Metometron seemed to be one of the most popular. I know that sounds like a planet from Star Trek. It's a herbicide primarily used for the farming of sugar beets, but now is used to thin apples and pears. The herbicide activity acts by disrupting photosynthesis. But who knows what exactly else it does out there. There's Prohexadon. This is an artificial plant regulator that reduces vegetative growth by inhibiting the synthesis of gibberellin, a naturally occurring plant hormone. Specifically, it decreases the length of shoot internodes. In apples and pears, it decreases the need for pruning and allows more light to penetrate the tree canopy. It also seems to increase fruit color. Then there's Trinexapac, and that's used for residential lawns and other areas. You'll like this one. Uh, it inhibits the biosynthesis of uh, a phytohormone that produces growth and thereby eliminates the need for frequent mowing and grass clipping. So if you've ever wanted to not bother to cut your grass, there's a chemical for that. Of course, there are dozens more which I heard about, but I did not write them down. I further find it deeply disturbing that the sponsors of the conference are several of these agrochemical companies who use the conference itself as a tool to promote both to scientists and other people in the ag industry their own chemicals. There was actually an hour set aside at the conference, oddly not on the schedule, for the industry update in which each company had a chance to stand up and tell all about their new agrochemicals and what amazing things they can do. I generally loathe the term natural because it is vague and overused and generally does not make a serious point. But in this case, I have to say, I think that application of endogenous plant hormones to crops may be a more natural and safer way to go. Endogenous meaning stuff that's in the plants. I will not go so far as to say I was horrified by some of the talks that I heard in Orlando. I'm just a bit too jaded for that. But I was deeply concerned by them. I actually heard the following from one of the scientists working for one of those ag companies as well as a respected major university, which will go unnamed. I'm not here to ruin reputations, just to inform the public. Quote, It is possible to get lateral branching on apple trees by pinching the top of the tree off by hand. This causes the lateral inhibition being induced by the apex of the tree to be lost. And once that is lost, you get more side branches being formed. Now, who wants to do that with hundreds or even thousands of trees? You can save time and money for fruit growers by simply being a good American and solving your problem by finding the proper spray. We compared the effects of spraying various doses of Promelin, Maxell, and Tiburon, unquote. So, spraying dangerous chemicals makes you a good American. Since when? Actually, what amused me the most about that talk was that one of the chemicals that worked the best for inducing side branching on the trees, Tiburon, which, by the way, allows for earlier fruiting in a two-year-old tree, was banned as dangerous a couple of years ago by the Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S. The researcher ended up bemoaning the fact that you can't use Tiburon in the U.S. anymore, but pointed out that European tree growers still 
quote-unquote, luckily had that option. While I was assured by one of the executive officers of the PGRSA that they are trying to get more members like me who are doing basic research and not agro-industry wonks, I do not get the impression that they are trying very hard. I do not see them recruiting at other biology conferences or advertising in science journals for new recruits. They definitely need new blood and need to have more members and more members who are not simply there to talk about how to get redder grapes. Since I was so horrified by what I considered an over-application of chemicals by farmers in the agro-industry, I questioned one of the agrochemical speakers from a company called Valent Biochemical on this overuse. I asked him to defend the chemistry. I basically said, as a geneticist, I cannot countenance your overuse of artificial chemicals to force plants to do what you want. As much as the public misunderstands and dislikes genetic engineering, it's still much safer than what you are supporting and more efficient. Why can't you genetically modify grapes to be redder or apple trees to thin themselves? The answer was, quote, How are you supposed to do that with full-grown grapevines or apple trees? What do you mean, I responded. I mean that a grower is not going to throw out a 10- or 20-year-old orchard just because you have a great new transgenic tree that may take several years to mature and give you a decent crop. And just as bad, good luck getting a vineyard owner to do that. It's not practical. So you're saying that economics is controlling this? In part. What's the other part? There are plants out there that need controlling that are not crops. There are plenty of landscaping companies that use our solutions to keep landscape trees from fruiting and falling onto cars or generally making a mess with seeds and seed pods or simply growing out of control. Those trees are already out there and mature, and no one is going to buy a transgenic version of a mulberry or a silver maple that doesn't fruit. Unquote. I get the point. Chemicals are cheaper to farmers and growers and landscapers. So for the moment, we seem to be stuck with them. That entire conversation gave me pause, but also saddened me quite a bit about the state of our food. I have never been a big believer in the organic food movement, since it seems like a huge technological step backwards. But I have to admit that they do have a point that our food has been over-treated with quite a number of mysterious chemicals. Enough of my tirade, quiet though it may be. Let's talk some real science. Dr. Kenneth Wright is a sleep researcher at the University of Colorado, and he has published a new study in Current Biology this month which suggests that people in modern society may have their sleep patterns messed up because they don't spend enough time outside. Wright took eight volunteers away from artificial lights for a summer camping trip. After nightfall, the campers used only campfires for illumination. No flashlights, no cell phones were allowed. While camping, the volunteers soaked up four times more light than they got indoors. And they went to sleep and naturally woke up more than an hour earlier than they had before the trip. After the trip, the volunteers' melatonin levels climbed around sunset and peered out at sunrise two hours earlier than they had before camping. Melatonin is the hormone that actually controls our sleep. 
After a week living in tents, volunteers' internal clocks shifted about two hours earlier, transforming night owls into early birds. A master clock in the brain controls the release of melatonin, which prepares the body for sleep. Uh, Melatonin levels usually rise in the early evening and then taper off in the morning before a person wakes up. But because so many people spend their days indoors and their nights bathed in the glow of electric lights, the body's clock can get out of sync. Melatonin levels ramp up later in the evening and ebb later in the morning, often after a person has woken up. The lingering sleep hormone can make people groggy. By exposing the campers to so much more light, Wright allowed his subjects to reset their clocks and get melatonin levels to be corrected for the actual night and day. Wright says that, quote, in order to reset their sleep clocks, people might not even need to rough it to nudge their internal clocks back, because typical office lighting is about 500 times dimmer than the light of a midsummer day. Even brief stints outside could help. Start your day off with a morning walk and open the shades to expose yourself to sunlight, unquote. So now that your sleep clock is reset, will you do a better job at work? Well, apparently, but not if you go out to lunch with your colleagues, according to Dr. Werner Sommer of the Humboldt University in uh, Berlin. He just published a paper in the July 31st issue of the journal Plus One that suggests that dining alone in your office may help your concentration for work. It has long been believed that dining with others fosters mental well-being, cooperation, and creativity. To test the effect of a midday social hour on the brain's capacity to get through the workday, Selmer gave 32 women lunch in one of two settings and then tested their mental focus. Half the women enjoyed meals over a leisurely hour with a friend at a casual Italian restaurant, and the other group picked up their meals from that same restaurant but had only 20 minutes to eat alone in a drab office. After lunch, the group that dined in bland solitude performed better on a task that assesses rapid decision-making and focus. Measurements of brain activity also suggested that the brain's error monitoring system could be running at subpar levels in those who ate out. Now, that's not to say that eating out and or being social is a bad thing. Being less rigidly focused can come in handy when navigating sticky social situations or resolving problems creatively. Summer's lab is now testing the effects of social meals on workers' creativity and generosity. He says, quote, Being a little less focused could be good or bad, depending on the situation. If you're running the control tower at the airport, you want to be as focused as possible. But if you try to be creative and need to come up with a new ad campaign or write a novel, it might actually help to dine out with your friends, unquote. This month's semi-titillating story has to do with monogamy. Why are any mammals monogamous? What's the advantage? Isn't it better for females to have lots of high-quality male mates as opposed to just one? Why has evolution pushed several species, including meerkats, wolves, beavers, and many primates toward monogamy. Is there some sort of a point to it? Social monogamy is normal for birds, but rare in mammals. That's because birds of both sexes can participate in parenting duties, such as incubating eggs and feeding chicks, but male mammals can't help gestate or breastfeed a baby. 
During the long period when a mother mammal is occupied with parenting, an opportunistic father can take off to sire more offspring with other females. Only about 9% of mammalian species live in pairs where the male sticks by its mate. This living arrangement is more common among primate species, where about a quarter live in pairs. In the August 2nd issue of Science, Drs. Dieter Lucas and Tim Clutton Brock from the University of Cambridge collected information on more than 2,500 species of mammals, nearly half of all mammalian species, and they hypothesized that there was a common thread among all the monogamous species. The researchers used published reports to classify each species as monogamous or not, and then noted whether the species practices infanticide and whether the females live in discrete territories. Using this data set, the researchers reconstructed the likely evolutionary history of mammalian monogamy. They concluded that monogamy evolved independently 61 times, almost always when females lived far from one another. What does that mean? Well, basically, in some species, there are not that many fish in the ocean because they are physically so far apart from one another. So you better hold on to one once you've got her in your hand. Lucas states, quote, Males have difficulty mating with multiple females. By sticking with one female and guarding her from amorous advances from other males, a male may produce more offspring than if he attempted to spread himself around, unquote. Another research group, led by Dr. Kit Opie of University College London, performed a similar evolutionary reconstruction on 230 primates. These researchers hypothesized in the July 29th Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that the main trigger for the evolution of monogamy was high rates of infanticide performed by the male primates. In non-monogamous species such as gorillas, Males may benefit from killing other males' babies because losing a baby forces the mother to enter her fertile period sooner. But males that hang around their mate and offspring can defend them from roving killers. So monogamy could have evolved as a counter-strategy, Opie suggests. Today, monogamous primates have very low rates of infanticide. And in some cases, such as the TTTD monkeys, native to South America, infanticide has never been observed at all. Lucas says that his results, as well as Opie's, have little to do with humans. Quote, Humans evolved from an ancestor that lived in social groups, so our theory about monogamy evolving when females live far apart doesn't apply. There is also no evidence that infanticide has ever regularly been part of human behavior. In fact, humans may not actually have evolved monogamy at all. Yes, humans may not actually be monogamous. In many traditional societies, one man may take several wives, unquote. I found that statement very telling. However, I couldn't find out anywhere whether Lucas is a Mormon or not. Okay, so you're thinking that story is not very titillating. Here's another one from the Journal of Current Biology. It comes out of the lab of Dr. Noritaka Hirohashi from Shimane University in Japan. It's hard for little male squids to beat out bigger male squids and mate. They can't compete at a physical level because they will simply be pushed out of the way and away from a female. 
So under most circumstances, the poor little guy will simply be shut out from the reproductive race. Well, runty loligo squids have come up with a way of outsmarting their larger counterparts and at least getting a chance to reproduce. After a large so-called consort male successfully courts a female, he deposits sperm into her oviduct. He then goes off and has a smoke somewhere, or whatever it is that loligo squid do after mating. However, a small sneaker male then rushes toward the mating pair and quickly deposits his sperm onto the female's skin, aiming for a small receptacle near her mouth. Now, this seems very strange since it is nowhere near the female's oviduct, but let me explain. The female expels the eggs from the oviduct, where most have been fertilized by the consort male. But as she deposits the eggs onto the seabed using the arm crown around the mouth, they are exposed to the sneaker sperm, resulting in external fertilization of the remaining unfertilized eggs. Okay, so the sneaky little guys get their sperm into position, but how can this form of fertilization be effective, given that there's little preventing the sneaker sperm from just floating off into the water? Hiroshi found that a bubble of CO2 strongly attracted sneaker but not consort sperm. Now, this is very interesting, as CO2 is a product of cellular respiration, and therefore it fits with the hypothesis that the sperm itself is producing the attractant. In fact, when the team added inhibitors of a common sensor for CO2, carbonic anhydrase, to the chamber, the swarming behavior of the sneaker sperm was reduced. The study elucidates how sperm has adapted to different mating behaviors through the process of evolution. It tells us that physiology adapts even within the same sex of the same species to ensure individuals can reproduce. So even the little guy has got a chance. The final story of the night is probably also the most important and most interesting, although I would not get excited too much quite yet. First of all, let me explain a process in genetics called dosage compensation. So what's dosage compensation? Well, it means that since you always have two copies of a chromosome, chromosomes 1, 4, 13, 21, you always have just the right amount of whatever enzymes are being produced from those two chromosomes. The only hitch in the deal is with the sex chromosomes. Since human males have only one X and females have two Xs, there's a problem for females. If both Xs are active and functioning, females would make twice as much of the X enzymes as males do. So how does Mother Nature solve this conundrum? It's through a process called X inactivation. That means that every extra X chromosome after one is turned off and blocked up to help ensure proper enzymatic dosage. So if a human female is born with three X chromosomes through a genetic mishap instead of two, two of her X chromosomes will be turned off. I think there are women with at least four X chromosomes whose phenotype is pretty much normal. So you can see that the process of inactivation works pretty well. What am I getting at here? In the July 17th issue of the journal Nature, Dr. Jean Lawrence a chromosome biologist at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, took advantage of that X inactivation system to turn off the extra chromosome 21 
in Down syndrome cells. Down syndrome, also called trisomy 21, occurs when people inherit three copies of chromosome 21 instead of the usual two. It's the most common chromosomal condition affecting about one in every 700 babies born in the U.S. People with the disorder typically have both physical and cognitive complications of having an extra chromosome. Cells inactivate extra X chromosomes by using a chunk of RNA called XIST, ZIST, which is made by one X chromosome but not by the other. The RNA works by pulling in proteins that essentially board up the chromosome like an abandoned building. The other X stays on by making a different RNA. Lawrence thought that if her team put XIST on another chromosome, it might shut that one down too. So she indeed put the gene for ZIST onto one of the three copies of chromosome 21 carried by stem cells grown from a man with Down syndrome. And the copy of the chromosome got switched off. One idea about why an extra chromosome 21 causes cognitive problems is that it may slow down the growth of brain cells. Lawrence grew nerve cells from the down patient stem cells to see how cells from one shutdown chromosome developed compared with cells bearing three active copies. The cells with only two working chromosomes grew faster, forming clusters of nerve cell precursors within two weeks, while the uncorrected cells needed four or up to five additional days. This is all very cool, but don't get excited yet. This is not a cure for Down syndrome. Right now, there's no way to get a piece of DNA targeted into every cell of anybody's body. And even if you could do that, it's too late by then. The developmental program has run its course. You can't repair cells and neurons that are already set in place on the brain. If such a treatment were to be attempted, it would have to be done very early in development. Lawrence says, quote, Therapeutic possibilities are still far in the future and may never pan out. We have to move cautiously and deliberately and not say that a cure for Down syndrome is on the horizon. It's simply not true. But gosh, we are so excited that progress is finally being made. Unquote. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Stay away from Tiburon cocktails. And I hope that I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. James, what can I say? Thank you very much, Squire. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Now we're coming into the main fiction, and like I say, it's part one of Ian Sales's Adrift on the, the Sea of Rains. I'll give you a little heads up about Ian. Ian Sales was only three when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, but he didn't see it on television because he grew up in the Middle East. He lived in Qatar. Oman, Dubai and Abu Dhabi before returning to the UK for school and spending only the holidays abroad. After graduating from university, he returned to Abu Dhabi to work, first for the higher colleges of technology and then for a national oil company. He came back to the UK in 2002 and settled in Yorkshire, where he now works as a database administrator for an ISP. He reviews books for Interzone and curates the science fiction Mistress Works site. 
He has had short stories and poetry published in Postscripts, Jupiter, Alt Hist and the original anthologies Claustrophobia, The Monster Book for Girls and Where We Are Going. In 2012, he edited the original anthology Rocket Science for Mutation Books. He is the founder and owner of Whisper Shield Books through which he has published the Apollo Quartet, of which Adrift on the Sea of Rains is the first. And like Adam says, it won the 2012 British Science Fiction Award for Best Short Fiction. The second book, The Eye with Which the Universe Beholds Itself, was published in January 2013. This story is narrated by Logan Waterman. Logan has a degree in technical theatre from California State University and has worked in many theatres, large and small, professional and amateur. He's also worked for Apple Computers, sold hot tubs and comic books, and prepared court documents. He has toured sword fighting for the stage and runs lights for a local band until they broke up. I've read this before, but it actually tickles us, this one. <laughs> he sold hot tubs. Currently works tangentially for the legal system, Watches a lot of science fiction television, listens to a lot of podcasts and reads a lot of science fiction novels and comic books. He hopes to make a bit of money from voice acting and narrating someday. Logan currently lives in Northern California with Grendel, a huge black beast whose primary occupations are sleeping and stalking the fishing aquarium. And Morgana, a small fluffy queen who rules the domain with an iron paw. Logan, what can I say? Fantastic little narration here as well. Well, it's not little, it's massive. So first we're going to get, we're just going to play Adam's little introduction. Greetings, Starship Sofa passengers. This is Adam Pratt. <clears throat> That's Pratt, your assistant editor. Before we get into this fantastic story, Adrift on the Sea of Rains by Ian Sales, I should give you a heads up on a few things. I first ran across the story while looking down the 2013 nominations list for the British Science Fiction Association Awards. I contacted Mr. Sales saying that I would be interested in considering the story. When I read what he sent back, I was impressed with the creativity and the high level of specific detail. I was strongly reminded of Apollo 13, one of my all-time favorite space movies, even if it isn't fiction. What you're about to hear isn't a drift on a sea of rains. At least, not exactly. Let me explain. I knew that I was going to be in for an interesting time from the first moment Mr. Sales replied to my inquiry. He said, and I quote, It sounds like an interesting prospect, though I do wonder how you'd handle the glossary. Glossary? I thought. He wasn't kidding. Adrift on the Sea of Rains comes not only with a 13-page glossary detailing such unfamiliar topics as the history of the Apollo program through Apollo 25, but also two full pages of nonfiction bibliography, a page of online resources, and two pages of abbreviations. What I soon discovered was that the greatest strength of Adrift on the Sea of Rains in print the nearly obsessive level of technical detail provided, also presented the greatest challenge to presenting the story in audio format. While one is perfectly capable of stopping in the middle of a sentence and flipping back to the glossary in print, we have no such luxury within a podcast. I was afraid that people would lose the thread of the story in the acronym soup, but I still wanted this story to happen. 
So, with trepidation, I cautiously brought up to Mr. Sales the idea of doing an audio edit for Starship Sofa, with the intention of retaining as much of the original text as possible, while editing it to make the technical terms as easy as possible to follow. To my relief, he heartily agreed to work with me on it. With this green light and interesting challenge in front of me, I hardly set about procrastinating. Monkeying around with the work of a professional writer was something I'd never had the audacity to attempt, so I honestly avoided it until I saw that Adrift on the Sea of Rains won the British Science Fiction Association Award. Then I knew I needed to buckle down. After batting it back and forth across the internet a few times, Mr. Sales and I settled on the version you are about to hear. I think it strikes a good balance between the original technical detail and the considerations of consuming the story via your ears rather than your eyes. If you do get stuck, however, Mr. Sales has graciously agreed to post the PDF of the glossary at his website, iansales.com. You'll also find a link to his site at starshipsofa.com in the show notes. In addition, I'll go over a few of the most common terms here, which I'm asking Tony to also repeat before Part 2 next week. They are A7LB, the technical designation for the Apollo spacesuit in the story, a variation on the suit most of us are familiar with. CSI, not Crime Scene Investigation. It stands for Coalyptic Sequence Initiation. It's a term relating to space navigation. EVA, extravehicular activity, anytime you go outside of a station or spacecraft in a suit. LEM, pronounced LEM, it stands for Lunar Excursion Module. This is a spidery-looking craft that actually lands onto the moon. Sales introduces something new, the A-LEM, or Augmented LEM, which is an update and improvement to our version. APS. Ascent Propulsion System, part of a LEM used to lift it from the moon. DPS, Descent Propulsion System, part of a LEM used to guide it to a landing. LEVA, Lunar Excursion Visor Assembly, the visor on the front of a spacesuit's bubble that can be adjusted up and down. PLSS, pronounced PLIS, it stands for Personal Life Support System, this is the backpack to the spacesuit. Most of the rest either doesn't confuse the understanding of the story if you're unfamiliar with it, or we've already done an edit to define it within the flow of the story. I'd also be remiss not to thank the narrator, Logan Waterman, on this one. This was a long and challenging story to narrate, and I'm so pleased with the results. Thank you, Logan, for all your long volunteer hours. So... I'll shut up now and just let you enjoy the story. There you go. Makes everything crystal clear. So, Starship Sova is very proud to present Adrift on the Sea of Rains, Part 1, by Ian Sales. Adrift on the Sea of Rains, by Ian Sales. Part 1. Some days, when it feels like the end of the world yet again, Colonel Vance Peterson, United States Air Force goes onto the surface and gazes up at what they had lost. In the gray gunpowder dust, he stands in the pose so familiar from televised missions. He leans forward to counterbalance the weight of his personal life support system 
his pliss, on his back. The A7LB spacesuit's inflated bladder pushes his arms out from his sides, and he stares up at the gray-white marble fixed mockingly above the horizon. He listens to the whir of the pumps. He breathes his own amniotic susurrus within the confines of his helmet. The noises reassure him. Sound itself he finds comforting in this magnificent desolation. If he turns about, blurring boot prints that might otherwise last for millennia, he sees the blanket-like folds of the mountains, gray upon gray, and a plain of the same lack of color, all painted with scalpel-edged shadows. Over there, to his right, the scattered descent stages of lunar module trucks and augmented limbs fill the mare, and one, just one, still within ascent stage. Another, he knows, is nearly twenty years old, an abandoned piece of history, but he does not know which one. A click from his radio reminds Peterson where he is. The voice of Major Philip Scott of the U.S. Marine Corps, his executive officer, follows. We're ready to make another evolution. Peterson glances at the Omega strapped to his space-suited forearm and sees that he's been out for half an hour. The Pliss is good for a seven-hour EVA. He says, I'll watch it from out here. Hope died months before. This is not a landscape in which hope can grow. These monochrome plains and mountains sustain nothing, real or abstract. The bell, Kindle's torsion field generator, offers some prospect of salvation, but every evolution so far has left them in the same situation. Another click precedes Scott's dry, plodding voice, 30 seconds. This is the third evolution Peterson has witnessed from outside the base. It is safe enough. An area more than a mile in diameter is affected, he should see it there. Yes. A ripple runs through the heavens. Above the lunar horizon, the earth wavers and blurs, and then returns. But its sky is still royal, sear, and blasted. It is not the blue marble Peterson needs to see. And, feeling lifeless inside, he tells Scott, another dead one. His thoughts are as gray and barren as the regolith on which he stands. So he shuffles about and begins to bounce back to sanctuary. Using his ankles as the thickly insulated spacesuit has very little range of movement at the knees, he propels himself forward in a slow arc. Each time he lands, dust billows about him and then falls with eerie suddenness. Peterson approaches the waist-high pole that marks the bulldozed ramp leading down into Rima Hadley and Falcon Base's airlock. He stops hopping and adopts a slow-motion rocking shuffle, a safer gait for the approach to the hatch. He's had plenty of time to learn how to get used to one-sixth gravity. Peterson should have rotated back to Earth after six months. He's been here two years. Three of the base's staff rotated themselves out after they learned they were alone, one overdose of sleeping pills, and two EVAs without spacesuits. Peterson despises them for their cowardice. He despises himself for believing salvation might be possible. They're all dead. All nine of them. Unless the bell finds them a home. Peterson knows it. He's learned to live with it, but he finds it difficult to accept. It is a concept that is beyond his intellect to handle. It's not aerodynamics or orbital mechanics, subjects he finally mastered after weeks of sitting on his ass in a classroom. Peterson has removed his gloves and just unlocked and pulled off his helmet when the airlock's inner hatch swings open. Scott carefully steps over the combing, sneezes, and puts the back of one hand up to his nose. 
Scott is sensitive to lunar dust. The Major follows Peterson into the suiting-up area and then helps him out of his spacesuit just as he assisted him into it earlier. He unscrews the hoses, lifts off the pliss after Peterson unlatches the straps holding it to his back, and then unzips the A7LB's pressure garment from the left hip, around the back, and up to the right shoulder. He asks, No luck, then? Look the same as the others, Peterson replies sourly. Scott shakes his head sadly. He has more bad news. Fulton's not picked up any radio traffic on the S-band, he says. Peterson contorts himself out of the spacesuit's torso, then worms out of its legs. Scott, a hand across his nose and mouth, sets about removing the lunar dust from the A7LB's knees, shins, and boots with a handheld vacuum cleaner. What does Kendall say? Peterson asks. He strips off the cooling garments worn under the A7LB and pulls on the constant wear garment. Scott turns from hanging up the spacesuit. The evolutions we've made are based on recent decision nodes, he says. Candle claims we need to move further, ones with nodes years back in the past. Peterson grunts. This is not unexpected. He asks how far back. The Major shrugs and says, 20 years maybe. Not too far, goddammit, or we could be even worse off. They leave the airlock and enter the base. These close confines are all the home Peterson has known for the past 24 months, or all he can expect to know for the short period remaining of his life. Gray lockers on every wall, a carpeted floor to which his Velcro slippers stick and rip free with every step. After six years, everything in the base is as dilapidated, as battered as Peterson feels. Pulled threads undulate like tiny kelp from the carpet. Bright glints, falsely promising newness, shine from the locker's worn edges and corners. The smell of burnt electronics, the cordite reek of regolith, the animal odors of men living in close proximity, all color the air. After the rubber and sweat stink of the spacesuit, Peterson's nose rebels at the palimpsest of aromas inside Falcon Base. But it will soon tire. He'll no longer register the smell, much as Peterson tires of life in the cramped cylinders, part buried beneath the lunar surface in the upper wall of Rima Hadley. Kendall's laboratory is at the end of the base, past the wardroom, gym, and one of the habitation cylinders. Peterson has grown up on B-movies and has spent years in the company of rocket scientists. He knows what a lab is supposed to look like, and Kendall's resembles nothing of the sort. It is a room like every other room in Falcon Base, walled with gray lockers and containing collapsible furniture made of drab aluminum tubing and plastic the color of fresh mown grass, a color that mocks them now that they have lost Earth. A pair of consoles occupies one side of the lab, each dominated by the cyclopean gaze of a circular monitor screen rigged with switches and indicator lights. The bell... Kendall never calls it that, only the torsion field generator, is not in the lab. It is outside, sitting in the bottom of the rill, and visible through a small window between the two consoles. Kendall did not invent the bell. It's a Nazi Wunderwaffe. It glows an alien violet color when activated. Kendall, compact and saturnine with a neat Van Dyke and a black gaze, and not the lunatic suggested by his field of study scowls as Peterson enters the lab. He says, I'm scaling it back. I can't afford to burn out more components. Peterson is outraged, and it shows. 
God damn it, I'm not spending what little time we have left playing safe. I want to get somewhere before supplies run out. Kendall draws himself up. He's made no secret of his opinion of Peterson. He never wanted to be sent to the moon to conduct his experiments. He'd be dead if he'd stayed on Earth, but he'd never acknowledged as much. If, he says, my calculations are correct... You've been saying that for over a year, snaps Peterson, and we're still here. Awkward in the lunar gravity and moving like a man underwater, Kendall Rip walks across to a locker. He opens it, fetches out a plastic crate, turns about and holds the crate at an angle to show its contents. Mil-spec integrated circuits. The code printed on their backs mean nothing to Peterson. When these have gone, Kendall says, I'll have to engineer something to take their place. I don't even know if I can do that. I can promise it'll take me weeks, months maybe, to come up with something. The man, Peterson thinks, and not for the first time, should have a German accent. A thick German accent. Not that grating Midwestern drawl. It makes it hard to take him seriously. As if the goddamn Nazi bell were not difficult to take seriously already. Peterson is an Air Force astronaut. He knows aircraft and spacecraft and their attendant scientists. All the rest is mumbo-jumbo. Kendall returns the crate to the locker and continues. Let me try a couple of evolutions with the power dialed down. Let's see if I can recalibrate the torsion field generator to get maximum evolution distance without blowing components. We've got four months, Peterson wants to say. We've got supplies for four more months, and then we're dead. There's no one to come for us, nowhere for us to go, unless the bell finds us a home. Colonel Vance Peterson did not see the end of the world, although he was on duty in the command center, sitting at his desk and listening to Lieutenant Robert McRae of the U.S. Navy read out his latest report to Vandenberg. And even then he barely took in little of what the man said. He'd put his hands behind his head and stretched his back, thinking, Another three weeks and he'd be rotated home, where he'd once again see blue skies, the good green earth, his blonde wife, and tow-headed son. He was looking forward to it. That was no surprise. It had been exciting at first, living here on the moon. But the novelty had soon worn off. Although he still found EVA fascinating, being out there on the surface, such a visceral confirmation of his presence here on Luna. There were, of course, plenty of clues within the base itself. The sense of lightness, as if his body felt the continual need to escape and return to Earth. The rip-rip, rip-rip of the Velcro slippers as he walked the confinement within these eight cylinders, the ever-present knowledge that outside existed an environment that would kill him in a heartbeat. He imagined the life aboard a nuclear submarine on patrol might be the same, although he suspected the sailors received better food, and certainly their days were better filled with tasks to perform. Much of the life here at Falcon Base was make-work, as there was only so much they could do to maintain the systems of the base or safeguard Kendall's incomprehensible experiments with the bell or keep a weather eye on Earth as the U.S. and the USSR maneuvered for war. From here, they could only imagine Soviet bombers testing U.S. defenses, NATO on full alert as Warsaw Pact forces lined up behind the Iron Curtain from East Germany to Syria, 
or diplomats leaving tables in disgust as talks failed again and again. From here, they could only see what appeared in orbit. No ICBMs yet, but plenty of recon satellites and the occasional Soyuz or TKS spacecraft flying a tad too close to space station freedom. They were not scientists at Falcon Base, which might at least have given them more of a purpose, a mandate to explore the small world they'd colonized, to discover its makings, its origins, and its uses. Instead, their eyes were focused on Earth, and it seemed a natural consequence of living in this airless sea where nature had not intended life to live, for thoughts to dwell on worries and daydreams of their homeworld. This in turn led to a blankness in the gazes of the men at Falcon Base. Not a thousand-yard stare, but a variation on lonely sky, that strange overpowering sense of solitude which overcame fighter pilots, in which they no longer felt bound to, or by, the earth, but briefly believed themselves to be creatures of the heavens, far beyond the... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Fears and vicissitudes of a terrestrial existence. Here on Luna, the astronauts were of Earth no longer, albeit temporarily, but they had concerns both immediate and a quarter million miles distance. The systems of the base, the moon's inimical environment, the situation back home, the brink of the war, the war, the war, the war. Which McKay demonstrated at that precise moment as he clipped through channels on the radio and said insistently, Repeat, Vandenberg, repeat, over. Peterson sat up straight, all thoughts of his impending return forgotten, and asked what was happening. McKay spun round from his station and said, they just went dead on me. I'm not picking up anything on VHF or S-band. There was this long burst of static and then nothing on any of the frequencies. Peterson did not understand. He considered the possibility of a catastrophic equipment failure, but every system had triple redundant backups and the likelihood they had all failed was astronomical. It occurred to him the fault might be at Earth's end, some malfunction in the deep space network, 
but that too had backup upon backup and separate facilities in different countries. Such failure was not an option. Keep trying, Peterson told McKay. And then he called Scott on the intercom and told him he needed a hand prepping for EVA. He was going outside, although there was no good reason to do so. Peterson sits at his desk in the command center, mapping the boundaries of his cabin fever. Soon he will have to go EVA again, but for now his awareness still resides within the curved bulkheads of the base's cylinders. It is the lightheadedness brought on by one-sixth gravity. It makes him feel as though his mind occupies a space bigger than the inside of his skull, as though it fills the room, the cylinder, Falcon base, Rima Headley, all lunar orbit. He puts his hands on the desktop, splayed-fingered, and gazes down at them. The last five evolutions have taken them to dead Earths. The salvation remains elusive, as precarious as their existence. Now that he has the bell recalibrated, more kilowatts, Kendall pumps into it, the further each evolution takes them. But push too far, and he'll burn out more than those integrated circuits. The main power bus, perhaps. The SP-100 nuclear reactor, maybe. Without that, they're finished. The fuel cells might last a week, eight days. Once they're drained... A scrape of sound across the command center catches his attention. McKay at the radio shack has just moved a clipboard. As Peterson watches, McKay picks up a pen and scribbles something on the page attached to the clipboard. He's not following orders. Peterson ceased giving them. He abdicated his authority over nine months ago, no longer seeing a reason for it. They're all highly trained officers. USAF, USMC, USN, pilots and aviators. And they know what needs to be done. They follow their daily routine, the unwritten orders of the day, because it fills their waking hours, because it provides some sense of purpose, some small reason to go on living. It makes bearable the desolate landscape around and about Falcon Base, the tubular prison of the base itself. Without routine, they would have no reason to monitor and maintain the systems which keep them alive. The note McKay has just scrawled is the result of an hourly scan of the S-band. It reads, nothing to report. As it has done since they witnessed the death of the Earth. Ripping noises rise lightly through the hatch from the floor below. Moments later, Scott's head appears, and he climbs into the command center. He's followed by Captain Gordon Curtis, USMC, who has a ring binder tucked under one arm. They're to spell Peterson and McKay, to take the watch for another four fruitless hours. McKay leaves without a backward glance, and Curtis settles before the radio and begins scanning frequencies. Peterson rises from his desk and gestures for Scott to take his seat. There's a protocol to these handovers. But they can only say, nothing to report, so many times, in so many different ways. Scott silently takes Peterson's chair, and it's as though what little personality the XO possesses drains from him. As Peterson watches, the man turns into an automaton, sits there blank and unblinking. Peterson leaves him to it. They all have their own ways of dealing with the situation, Deep inside each of them, hope has been eroded away to a tiny nub, useless as an appendix. Peterson loses himself in the lunar landscape. McKay locks himself into his room and listens to mournful country music, as if their misery renders his own smaller and more manageable. 
Scott has put away his personality, consigned it to some corner of his mind where it cannot be battered and bruised by their slow descent into despair. Curtis reads, working his way obsessively through every manual and technical document in the base. Kendall has his torsion field generator, the bell, whose arcane workings he claims to understand more with each passing week. The others, Alden and Fulton, Bartlett and Newbeck, each have their own methods to counter the madness. For now, those four are hidden away somewhere, perhaps in their own rooms, in the gym, the workshop. Peterson doesn't know, he doesn't want to know. He considers visiting Kendall in his lab, but he doesn't like the man and the feeling is mutual. He makes his way down the corridor to his own room, feeling like he's walking on tiptoes through the soles of his feet adhere strangely to the carpet. He reaches his room, slides open the flimsy door, stretches out on his bunk, and thinks black thoughts. Every now and again his breath seems to catch in his throat, as if expecting vacuum. These brief panic attacks have become increasingly common and are now waking him several times each night. Only in his spacesuit, wrapped in its protective embrace and soothed by the whir of its fans and pumps, does he feel peace. The polycarbonate helmet and its lunar excursion visor assembly is his window to the world. It gives him distance from the lifeless landscape. He needs to be able to divorce himself from his surroundings, to put up barriers, physical and emotional and mental, between himself and the world. Without that, he thinks he might die. He refuses to invest too much emotion in the bell. For months now, it's taken them to one dead earth after another. Yet he still believes escape is possible. Peterson had only three weeks left of his tour when Kendall arrived at Falcon Base, although he'd known of the man's arrival for several weeks in advance, and he'd repeatedly argued the moon was not the place for a scientist, that if his experiments were so vital to national defense, they needed to be somewhere secure, the moon's only defense being its remoteness. There was little stopping the Soviets launching one of their proton boosters, sending a warhead all the way to Mare Ibrium, and creating a new crater right where Falcon Base lay buried in the wall of Rima Hadley. After all, the situation was getting real bad down there. Peterson could see that even from his distant eerie. No, nothing in orbit yet. No rain of ICBMs horizon to horizon, rocketing east to west, immediately answered with a retaliatory launch speeding west to east. No ten-minute warning, no classroom silent but for the whimpering of kids huddled beneath their school desks. No slamming hatches echoing across yards as people waited for the end in inadequate fallout shelters. It had not gone that far yet. But NORAD had been at DEFCON 2 for the last five months, and there was fighting in Anatolia between Soviet forces and NATO-backed Kurdish rebels, and it was only a matter of time before the rest of NATO pitched in and the battle spread north along the Iron Curtain. Vandenberg claimed they'd spot any warhead launched on a translunar trajectory, and they'd give Peterson plenty of warning, which didn't answer what they'd do at Falcon Base after an alert. Hide in the Apennine Mountains? In the depths of the Archimedes crater? Learn to breathe vacuum and lick off the regolith. There were a dozen men at the base, but only a single augmented limb with an ascent stage, which could lift four into orbit, and now they were using the new Block 4 five-man command modules, they could get those four back to Earth in one spacecraft. But it didn't take a rocket scientist to see the math didn't add up. For all those hours Peterson had spent in classrooms at Johnson Space Center and the Cape and Vandenberg, 
learning his way around the Apollo spacecraft and Falcon base, he'd travel to the moon as much on faith as on aerosene 50 and dinitrogen tetroxide, on an unshakable conviction that if all went snafu on the moon, Vandenberg would do their damnedest to get every man home. Once he was on Luna, of course, he saw the error of his ways. If it broke on the moon, you fixed it on the moon. You couldn't send it off to the repairman a quarter of a million miles away. If you didn't fix it, you died. That wasn't the case for equipment they sent with Kendall for his experiments. If that broke, there'd be a nasty bill for the Pentagon, but no one was going to find themselves sucking vacuum, which was relief, except the bell was a Saturn V all its own. A lem truck that could have, and should have, carried supplies, though they had close to two years' worth on hand in Falcon Base. The 100-kilowatt SP-100 nuclear reactor was good for 20 years, and they recycled their air and water so effectively that both would last for years, too. But food, that was the problem. If it could be called food, all freeze-dried or flash-frozen and about as appetizing as a Pan-American economy-class meal consumed somewhere in the Atlantic in a Boeing 2707 SST, as commander, Peterson felt it incumbent on him to see Kendall land. So he was outside in his spacesuit, with lunar dust all over his boots and shins, as the augmented limb came hurtling over the horizon, the most ungainly flying craft he had ever seen, and each time he saw it in flight, the thought struck him anew. As it approached, it pitched up and began to descend, throwing out a pancake cloud of gray dust. And it all happened in complete and utter silence, an absence of noise broken only by the steady hum of the fans and pumps of his pliss, not the rocket's red roar his eyes told him he should be hearing. They got Kendall out of the augmented limb. He brought Alden and Newbeck with him, and he needed their help getting prepped for EVA and then moving about in the one-sixth gravity. And Peterson knew, with a sort of sinking feeling brought on when reading orders written by some asshole with no situational awareness, he knew they'd skimped on Kendall's training and the man was going to be a liability. Then the limb truck flew over the horizon at 200 feet, pitched over from 20 degrees to vertical, and began its computerized descent on its invisible flame, and, sitting on its cargo platform with some bell-shaped thing that was so unlike anything Peterson had ever seen before, he knew it had to be Kendall's. When he found out later what the bell was, he wondered just how bad it was on Earth, just how desperate was the Pentagon. This was ultra-deep black, not even the President's advisors knew— but Vandenberg had to tell Peterson something, especially when he saw the swastika and eagle embossed on the bell, and Kendall later admitted the device was over 40 years old and had been discovered in a Nazi underground facility in Silesia at the end of the Second World War. Kendall himself had been working on it for the last 20 years, mostly up at Montauk on Long Island, with the surviving members of the Project Rainbow team who had apparently done weird shit with a destroyer in Philadelphia in 1943. It was Kendall's contention the torsion field generator could only fulfill its potential in vacuum, so the Pentagon had moved his entire project, lock, stock, and bell, to the moon, even though he'd never wanted to come in the first place. And Peterson gazed at this professor of exotic physics, a man who made Tesla look like a high school science teacher, and then looked out the window in the lab at the bell, sitting in its framework in the bottom of Rima Hadley, all aglow violet, and he thought he was here on the moon and it all turned to goddamn science fiction. 
Five more evolutions, and the Earth still throws its unforgiving silver gaze down upon the moon, as the moon itself once looked down upon the Earth. They've tried further back in time, as Kendall proposed, selecting decision nodes they remembered from the newspapers of their youth, to no avail. Peterson stalks the corridors that stretch the length of Falcon Base, as much as he can stalk in Velcro slippers and one-sixth gravity. Frustration sweeps through him, and he swings an arm at the nearest locker, relishing the impact of his fist on the metal. In the gym, he pushes himself until his arms and legs burn, until even the weak lunar gravity seems to drag heavily at his aching muscles. Needing the wide-open monochrome vistas of the surface, he goes EVA. He walks along the edge of the Apennine front. It's more of a jog, bouncing from side to side, sliding one foot forward and then the other, and doesn't stop until he has passed the last of the tire tracks made by Apollo 15's lunar rover. Falcon Base, the Garden of Descent stages on the Sea of Rains, both are lost to view, hidden behind a soft feminine shoulder of the mountains. He is in a desert, leached of life and color, and not even the star-speckled blackness above can offer anything but emptiness within and without. He turns back while he has enough air in the pliss to return. Scott makes no comment, just vacuums the gray dust from the spacesuit in tight-lipped silence. On his next watch, Peterson sits at his desk and gazes at McKay at the radio. Neither has spoken. They came on duty, relieving Alden and Fulton, and silently took their places, and they have said nothing since. It occurs to Peterson he's as isolated within Falcon Base as he is out on Mare Imbrium. But it is not the solitude of AVA which draws him. It is the sense of safety he feels when wrapped in his spacesuit's nurturing cocoon. No matter which way he looks, to the west across the Palace Putridinus, or north towards the limbs of the Sea of Rains, whichever direction, his view is framed by the leva of his helmet. He cannot fully engage with the lunar landscape because he is forever shielded from it. His fingers will never feel in situ the fine cordite dust of the regolith. His face will never experience the pure beat of the sun's rays. Though he lives here, Peterson will never be of the moon. His reverie is cut short by a rhythmic rip-rip-rip from the chamber below. Peterson has grown to hate that noise. It is as irritating as McKay endlessly clicking the end of his pen. But unlike McKay's pen, he cannot demand it cease. Kendall's head appears in the hatch from below. He halts once his shoulders are above four level, scowls at Peterson, and then pulls the rest of his body into the command center. He crosses to Peterson, walking like a man much stouter. I think I can do it, he says, still with that scowl on his face. Peterson remembers no promises from their last conversation. He recalls only bluster and excuses. When Kendall first arrived at Falcon Base, Peterson mistook his arrogance for assurance. But after two years of the man, he knows now the scientist operates the bell as much on guesswork as he does using the scientific method. I can get us further, says Kendall. It's going to take more watts, so we'll need to power down some of the base. It's almost Pavlovia in the way Peterson responds to Kendall. His beard, his air of petulant intellectualism, his unfitness for the space program, his very presence here. Every time the man opens his mouth, Peterson finds himself fighting a rising tide of anger. It is happening now. Like what? demands Peterson. You think there's systems here we don't need and you can just switch off? 
the air you breathe, the water you drink, the food you eat, the light you see by, the heat that stops you freezing to death. We need power for all of it. If we power down the monitoring equipment, maybe turn off a few lights, we're going to save a handful of watts. But that thing of yours out in the rill drinks goddamn kilowatts. I need more power, Kendall insists mulishly. Then you magic up some goddamn power, Peterson replies, and you use that. Although his watch is not over, Peterson pushes past the scientist and crosses to the hatch in the command center's floor. He steps on the first rung of the ladder, grabs the combing, and swings himself down into the suiting-up area below. He walks along the corridor towards his room. The noise of his slippers rip-rip-rip-ripping from the carpet fuels his rage. He stops as vertigo swoops through him and sets the corridor rolling. Putting a hand to the wall, and reassured by the touch of plastic against his palm, he sucks in a deep breath. Air fills his lungs, and his panic begins to ebb. He feels thick-headed, his anger gone as swiftly as it came. But what remains is smothered, wrapped about by a blanket. He reaches up and drags a hand back along the side of his head. The pressure of his palm against his skull... The friction of the heel of his hand brings him back into himself. After he slows his breathing, Peterson continues on his way to his bunk. Passing the wardroom, he hears an abrupt clatter. He stops. The next scheduled meal time is not for hours. They all decided long before to eat their rations in front of each other. Mutual suspicion is their best defense against temptation. Peterson slides the door and steps into the room. There are two tables in the wardroom. One to the left, one to the right. Each table sits three to a side on benches. Behind each table are store cupboards and a microwave. Sitting to Peterson's left, his back to the door, is First Lieutenant Ed Newbeck, USAF. He's bent over a metal bowl, a spoon halfway to his mouth. His shoulders are hunched. He does not move. Peterson stares at the back of Newbeck's head, at his unkempt hair. The rage returns. It is not Newbeck stealing a food that angers him. It's that the man has let himself go. He's unshaven, and his hair has grown to his collar and is unwashed and uncombed. The hand holding the spoon begins to shake. "'What the hell is this?' demands Peterson. Newbeck puts down his spoon. It strikes his bowl with a brittle clang. He says nothing. Stepping further into the wardroom, Peterson puts a hand to Newbeck's shoulder and hauls back. The man turns boneless beneath his grip, seems to both fold and straighten. If you steal food, then you don't get to goddamn eat at mealtimes, Peterson says. His hand is still on Newbeck's shoulder, and he pulls it away as if he's inadvertently grabbed something unclean or dead. He feels an urgent need to wipe his palm, but resists. I was hungry, Newbeck mumbles. Until this moment, Newbeck has seemed to orbit Peterson's world rather than dwell within it. Their paths cross only at mealtimes, and even then, the nine of them might as well be in separate rooms. They do not talk to each other. They do not meet each other's gaze. Outside the wardroom, they're on different watches, and they do not rotate because they're comfortable with their watch partners. This is the first time he's taken a good look at Newbeck in weeks, perhaps longer. He remembers the resentment he harbored when Newbeck was first assigned to Falcon Base. The man is a gifted pilot, but lacks discipline. It says so in his record. He should never have been invited to join the astronaut corps. He's lazy. He makes mistakes. He replies on his aw shucks country boy charm to evade the consequences. 
I see you here again for the next two days, says Peterson. You get nothing for a week. Hey, I gotta eat, protests Newbeck. You can't give me no food for two whole days. Peterson feels himself enveloped. The enclosing air bladder of an A7LB about him, his view constricted by helmet and leva, the whisper of fans in his ears. He is here but in a world of his own. He cannot be touched and nothing can touch him. He reaches out and puts a hand to the back of Newbeck's head. It is not his palm and fingers that touches the man's greasy hair, but a glove's. He forces Newbeck's head forward and down with a savage thrust. The man's face hits the bull before him. Newbeck yells, the bull tips, and slow motion spills its contents to one side of the tabletop. Newbeck swears and jerks back his head. He twists to look up at Peterson. His forehead is cut, a line of red across his brow like a thief's brand. Stew drips from the end of his nose, is painted across one cheek. Peterson steps back. His spacesuit will protect him, might as well hit a man in armor. Newbeck pulls himself up from the bench, but slows and comes to a halt. Peterson moves to one side. Newbeck swears again, then leaves the wardroom. In the now empty room, the illusion Peterson is wearing a spacesuit abruptly vanishes. He wipes his hand against his leg, but the corruption smeared across his palm will need fiercer scrubbing. He wonders briefly what came over him, but it's not something wishes to think about too hard. He steps out into the corridor, slides the door to the wardroom shut, and continues on his way. Peterson arrives at his cabin. He lies down on his bunk and throws an arm across his eyes. Against the black of his closed eyelid, he sees the lunar horizon, an undulating line of ash-gray snow, and above it, the insubordinate Earth. He was not so blasé that he would fall asleep waiting for the launch, during the frequent delays, even during the countdown itself, as some astronauts had done. Peterson still felt a keen anticipation, an eager expectancy of the inexorable push of the rocket's muted thunder, seeing the console before him vibrate until it blurred. It was a suspense tempered with apprehension, a foreknowledge of the slow buildup of G's, the Earth's reluctance to let him depart, pulling him back with such force his chair creaked and groaned beneath him as he suffered under his own increasing weight. And then that moment of vertigo, the abrupt revelatory lucidity as the crushing acceleration suddenly ceased and he was thrown forward against his straps, only to snap back as if kicked in the chest as the first stage dropped away and stage two ignited. That one point in the trip to orbit on every launch he made sparked the realization that he'd been sitting on top of 363 feet of explosive, equivalent to half a kiloton of TNT, that he was being propelled into the air by nearly 80 million pounds of thrust. Rocket travel was not safe. There'd been remarkably few accidents, and there were countless backup systems, but when something went wrong, it did so catastrophically. Now Peterson was in orbit, and he no longer felt contact with the seat beneath him, and his arms were floating above his seat's armrests, seemingly of their own accord. The command module pilot, CMP, set about removing his spacesuit, and a pair of gloves and polycarbonate bowl of an upturned helmet drifted past Peterson like one of those moments in a Tex Avery cartoon seconds before calamity strikes. On this taxi mission to the moon, the CMP captained the spacecraft since Peterson and Curtis, the third astronaut, were only along for the ride. 
nor would they be returning, at least not for six months. Newly promoted Colonel Vance Peterson, USAF, had been given command of Falcon Base, the USA's only settlement on the moon, located near the landing site of Apollo 15. The fourth mission to land on the lunar surface back in July 1971. The Soviets had nothing like Falcon Base, were unlikely ever to put a man on the moon, though he'd heard they'd come close once, but their N-1 booster, which was nearly as big and powerful as a Saturn V, had been plagued with problems and never flew. Of course, they had other problems now. Or rather, they had changed priorities, and perhaps looked to other solutions to the problem a moon landing might well have solved. And this time the Soviets were determined to succeed, and their brinksmanship had already spilled over into bloodshed. They'd been sending supersonic bombers over the North Pole for decades, Peterson himself had intercepted a number of them, and reconnaissance aircraft over U.S. fleets, and sneaking nuclear submarines into U.S. and European waters, but in space they were falling behind fast and they knew it. Their technology, their engineering wasn't up to the job. After finally subduing Iraq and now in control of its oil fields, much to the world's embarrassment, the Russians had manufactured an excuse in West Germany and moved across the border in force and Peterson had heard about it and wished he was back in tactical air command so he could go head-to-head against Soviet fighter pilots and prove who had the right stuff and who would be falling to Earth in flames. But it was all over in a week, hundreds left dead, black smoke over Hanover and Matterberg, the burnt-out wrecks of main battle tanks and fields that once held wheat, but they'd never be beaten into plowshares. They dared not call it a war, though the border was back where it had been before, only this time drawn with the blood of servicemen, this time a barricade they shall not pass. And Peterson looking down on it from high above, so high that nations and manifest destinies blurred into a palimpsest of geography and history. But that was then and this was now, so he turned away from the spacecraft's window and looked down its floating length, knowing that after translunar insertion, he'd spend two days in this sealed chamber, hurtling at near 25,000 miles per hour towards the moon. He'd be kept busy, as his spacecraft needed constant monitoring and adjustment via 26 panels of switches, dials, meters, and circuit breakers, a console 13 feet wide and 3 feet high. Peterson was eager to learn the routine of living on the moon, to discover the demands it made on a person, to expand his horizons and stretch his envelope. In truth, he knew there'd be little enough for him to command. A few dozen small scientific experiments already in situ the monitoring of lunar orbit for Soviet spacecraft, and keeping watch on Earth through the main telescope for objects in LEO, low Earth orbit. Falcon Base was a working installation, but its strategic workload was light and its tactical workload non-existent. As he divested himself of his own spacesuit and stored it in the area beneath the bank of seats, Peterson grinned at his fellow travelers to the moon and thought, by God, it was good to be here right now. Peterson is outside again. He stands with elbow crater at his back, falcon base to his left, and gazes north across Mare Imbrium. The land falls away from him in a gentle slope, flat but for the dimples of craters. Ahead, one such depression is too deep for the bottom to be visible. Four miles away, the far slope of another crater, littered with rocks, forms the face of a flat, low hillock. Beyond that, though it resembles a wind-smoothed dune of gray sand, Mount Hadley stretches more than 15,000 feet into the lunar sky. The sun is high up to his right, throwing sharp black shadows. Peterson's world is gray, but he can see streaks of pale brown, and even white, in amongst the footprints, 
tire tracks, and disturbed regolith. He feels calm, smoothed by the insistent whir of the fans of his pliss, by the comforting rubber and sweat stink of his A7LB. Peterson has come to love the desolate lunar scape, a black-and-white rendering of the high desert, busy with razor-edged detail, but lifeless. Once, Apollo 15's lunar module sat alone on the plane, its silver face and golden skirt alien and bright, a strange visitor bringing color to this monochrome world. Though Peterson knows the Lem's descent stage is one of many now scattered across Mare Imbrium, he's not sure which one it is. On past EVAs, he's wandered among the spider-legged spacecraft, looking for a commemorative plaque. Progress has hidden Apollo 15's Lem, the achievement it represents from casual view. The descent stages of the augmented limbs are identical to it. Peterson's radio squawks. 30 seconds to evolution, says Scott. Peterson turns left so he's facing the Earth. The thought of a mission to that blasted world, a lunar mission in reverse, but with the same technical requirements, occurs to him. He imagines wandering the streets of New York in his spacesuit. Assuming, of course, those streets still exist, the city was likely a target. Or perhaps a visit to the fields of Omaha and Nebraska. Except they, too, probably did not survive. The Soviets would have targeted the Minutemen and Titans silos beneath their soil. The American countryside, he suspects, looks little different to Mayor Ibrium. He could be standing there now, he thinks. But the sun here is too bright, the horizon too close. Five seconds, says Scott. Peterson counts them down beneath his breath. He watches the earth, sees it shimmer and change to blue. For one brief moment, he cannot speak. He opens his mouth, but can think of nothing to say. He imagined he would never see a living earth again. They had all thought so, even Kendall. But the delicate planet above the lunar horizon is a blue marvel he remembers. Phil? He says thickly. I think this is it. The earth shines. It shines. Blue mottled with small patches of brown and marbled with white clouds. Someone lets out a whoop over the radio. Peterson winces at the volume. He opens his mouth to bark an order, but closes it without saying a word. There is cause for celebration, after all. He stares at the earth, afraid it might return to a lifeless black, that this is an illusion. He wills it to remain. A lightheadedness comes over him. Another voice on the radio it's a moment before Peterson identifies it as Bartlett. Got it! Bartlett crows. On the high gain! Some radio show, and it's American by God! Peterson can no longer remain outside. He turns his back to the earth, and beneath the newly benevolent blue gaze, he jogs back to Falcon Base. He springs from foot to foot, leaping high in his urgency dangerously near losing his balance with each ballistic step. In the suiting-up area, he unlocks and pulls off his polycarbonate helmet and abruptly hears loud conversation in the command center above. He struggles out of his A7LB alone, wondering at Scott's absence, and leaves the spacesuit sprawled like a victim on the floor. At the foot of the ladder, he halts and looks up through the hatch. That noise, it seems so alien, 
a direct affront to the monasterial quiet which normally pervades Falcon Base. They're all in the command center, pale, wraith-like men, driven insipid by isolation, with haunted eyes and deep creases bracketing unaccustomed smiles. Patterson wades in among them, slapping backs and shaking hands, hard enough and tight enough to bruise flesh and grind bone. We're going home, goddammit, he tells them repeatedly. Kendall climbs up through the hatch and gazes in awe at the officer's celebrations. Well, he demands, well, what happened? Can someone tell me what happened? Curtis, who has put down his manuals, breaks the news. Kendall nods in acknowledgement, frowns darkly in thought, then a slow smile evolves on his face. We're saved, he says in wonder. End of part one. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Ian's. Ian, thank you so much for that. It's a real pleasure. And Logan, thank you for great narration. Tune in next week for part two of Adrift on the Sea of Rains. So before we just get into sci-fi soundtracks with David Raiklin, another little, you know, just a little reminder about donations and everything like that. You know, we did put the call out, but there has been a number, and I guess it's all to do with holidays and everything like that. There's been a number of cancellations on the subscriptions, you know, the monthly donations. And, you know, like I say, I just need to give you a prod every now and again, just to remind you that we are kind of funded by yourselves. We, this, this runs by our, you know, we do it ourselves. It's all kind of voluntary and we kind of need to, to keep going that's the goal so if you want to join the monthly donations that would be fantastic you know there's a little you get some nice freebies there as well you get the joe haldeman lecture that he did and the over a hundred of the original original starship sofa store shows with myself and kieran in there debating the, the fantastic writers that are out there or have been out there so please think about donating, that would be fantastic, and keeps this old girl going, long into the future. So finally we have another fact article, it is SF Sci-Fi Soundtracks by Mr. David Raikland, David Squire. Hello everybody, welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction music, sound effects, and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. I'm your host, David Raikland. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the Starship. This time we're going to explore an epic orchestral soundtrack that's part of one of the great hits of the summer. We're going to boldly go into darkness with Star Trek and Michael Giacchino's score to J.J. Abrams' smash hit sequel to the 2009 Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness, and this is one of the finest of the recent sequels in the quality and diversity of the soundtrack. It's got great melodies, some new, some recurring friends. There's even some quotations from the original series and music from the uh, original Star Trek motion picture uh, way back in the 70s. So there's lots of interesting material, and it's all beautifully woven together. I'd say that this is perhaps the most satisfying Star Trek soundtrack in a good long while. It features very well-placed, exciting, and fun quotations from the great canon of Star Trek music going back to the 60s and 70s. 
That's part of the secret of keeping a franchise, a series alive and vital, is to blend the classic mythology elements that everyone knows, and maybe only some select fans know, but it still provides depth and resonance along with the new material. The 2009 Star Trek had some issues with trying to avoid references to the earlier series, especially in the soundtrack, and it's wonderful to see that being embraced a bit more. And now it really is a Star Trek movie as well as a summer blockbuster action movie. It's kind of a roller coaster ride that passes through a buddy picture, a apocalyptic future, as well as the Star Trek territory, and it's all in good fun. We're going to start with the very first musical cue in the whole picture, which is a kind of prologue that has the logo and the, the titles and then turns into high-intensity action sequence where, spoiler alert, the Enterprise tries to save a native civilization that's primitive from the power of an erupting volcano in violation of the Prime Directive. So for you Star Trek fans, this is kind of cool and fun action that relates to the Star Trek universe. It opens, we hear Giacchino's Star Trek theme stated in a solo French horn, has a kind of noble and seeking quality, and then we go right into a version of the Spock theme. Here we go, logos and pranking the natives. Logos and Pranking the Natives from Star Trek Into Darkness, score by Michael Giacchino. I made a little edit there so you could hear the nobility and spaciousness of the logo theme and the rambunctious, rollicking action in the exploding volcano scene. A lot of different action in a very short time, and we're starting to hear the thematic backbone. The very next cue is... Spock Drops, which has a very strident brass statement of the Spock theme that was actually more subdued in the first movie. But now here it's a very prominent action theme, and it becomes even more powerful later on in the movie. So here it is, Spock Drops. Star Trek Into Darkness. There's a second part to this cue called And Kirk Jumps, but we didn't play that far. We're only getting little excerpts. You can hear the Spock theme very powerfully played with uh, orchestral flourishes behind. In that way, it's a kind of traditional John Williams-style action epic, and that's one of the major changes in Michael Giacchino's score for Star Trek in contrast to, say, Jerry Goldsmith, as it's focused on more singable tunes and orchestral flourishes that are a little more traditional and operatic rather than experimental and avant-garde. It's an interesting transformation to hear the Star Wars influence on Star Trek. 
You can see it on the screen and you can hear it in the soundtrack. Now let's go to a very intriguing and wonderful excerpt that is actually not in the movie at all, but was a key part of the behind-the-scenes process of creating the score to Star Trek Into Darkness. There is a very important character that at first is called Harrison. And John Harrison's uh, another identity that you probably already know by now, but when you first go to the movie, you don't realize that, unless someone has spoiled you. So we now have a ode to Harrison, written by Michael Giacchino. In the process of developing the score, he came up with a six-note triplet, da -da 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 -da, a very um, driving, almost maniacal, rhythmic motif that has an obsessed quality. It's kind of on the, the borderline between... Uh, a good guy and a bad guy theme, which is very important in the evolution of the John Harrison character into his true identity. This is something that was developed by Michael in the music. He recorded it with a symphony orchestra and presented it to J.J. Abrams, the director, who approved, and then this idea became incorporated into the score, having the uh, evolution of the theme. It's actually about nine minutes long, and we don't really have time to go into that. It starts quietly, ends quietly, goes through tremendous action and almost de demented intensity in the orchestra and electronics, world percussion, and symphonic instruments are all masterfully mixed together. Ode to Harrison. to Harrison, an orchestral suite created by Michael Giacchino to prepare for scoring Star Trek Into Darkness. I think it'll get some play as a concert piece, too. It's got action, drama, all kinds of incredible orchestral colors combining world music, symphonic, electronics. This is one of the most electronic-heavy scores that Giacchino has done. Still, the orchestra has the primary role, and that really helps to humanize the characters and to bring the science fiction home. Next, let's hear that Harrison theme as it actually appears in the movie in one of the most exciting sequences. We'll have the Spock theme, the Harrison theme, and a callback to Star Trek, the original series, a Spock battle anthem that you might recognize there in the trombones at the end, all rolled together into the San Fran Hustle. San Fran Hustle from Star Trek Into Darkness. This is one of the most exciting hand-to-hand -hand combat sequences, and the protagonist and antagonist themes are counterpointed with Harrison, that is Khan's theme, and Spock's theme, the new one from the current series. This is also a wonderful example of how the current series does pay 
homage and incorporate some of that multi-decade musical treasure from Star Trek TV movies and games and includes a bit of Spock's battle anthem from Amok Time in Star Trek the Original Series. We can actually go into the wonderful musical history of Star Trek in another show, but let's go on to one of the most beloved civilizations that has to be characterized in any Star Trek series or spin-off, and that's the Klingons. Here we have a primitive and warlike battle cry in the chorus and powerful driving percussion. The orchestra is used in a very percussive way, even the pitched instruments, to create something that may be even wilder than the any of the previous incarnations of the Klingons. And yes, they are singing. The chorus is singing in Klingon. They're just hurling insults, but it makes for a lot of fun and excitement. So here it is, the Kronos War Tet, the Klingon battle theme. Kronos Wartet, Klingon Civilization Battle Music from Star Trek Into Darkness Music by Michael Giacchino. A wonderful, percussive use of the orchestra, and the chorus is shouting, stamping their feet, doing uh, warrior kinds of effects. Great fun here. Now let's move to a poignant moment in this movie, and in the soundtracks touching on both history of Star Trek and the moment. This is Kirk Enterprises, and we get the actual main theme from Star Trek the Original Series, which also was played in at least nine of the movies and the, uh, the television series spin-offs. It's the Alexander Courage theme, and it sounds as wonderful and noble and inspiring as it ever has, a wonderful orchestration and reharmonization to imagine it for the 21st century. Kirk Enterprises. Enterprises, bringing together the new Star Trek theme and the classic Alexander Courage fanfare. A very emotional performance and moment in the new Star Trek film. Now let's listen to what Michael Giacchino says about bringing in elements from the classic Trek over it. Well, you know, I didn't, I actually didn't open that set until I was done scoring into darkness. Mm. I had it and, and it was sitting here and I didn't open it until it was done. But actually there is a funny story on my last day when I was finished writing completely and everything was off my desk and uh, the orchestrator was taking care of it, getting everything to the copyist and getting it ready for our recording session. I thought to myself, I'm done. It's over. And then I, 
got this message on Twitter from one of the followers who said, I hope you're including some of the music from the old series in, in the score. And I thought, no, why would I do that? I'm not going to do that. So I went downstairs and I'm thinking about it and it just, I couldn't get it out of my head. I was like, uh, uh, and then I was like, Oh man. So I went back upstairs to my office, turned everything back on. And I thought, you know what? He's right. I have to put something in there. <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, there's a theme that I always absolutely loved. And it's one of the very famous sort of fight, uh, themes. Uh, and I, I'm not going to be too specific about it because we'll leave that up to the fans to, to, to locate it within the score. Uh, but I did. I went back. I opened it up. I erased about. I don't know, 10 measures of this one cue that I was working on, and I replaced it with some uh, utilizing that theme, and it was in this perfect spot to use it too. So I thought, why not? I should be doing that. So so I did oh, do great. that. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for Science Fiction Soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction, fantasy, video game, TV, soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Connect on Facebook and see what we're up to next. D-A-V-I-D dot R-A-I-K-L-E-N. Music and interviews copyright their respective owners. Contact me, David Raiklin, at cinematicmusic1 at gmail.com. There you go. And I've already got David's next one as well. David's next one will be, just to give you a heads up, will be the part two of Defiance. If you remember, David did the part one of Defiance. Now it's part two. So I've got that for next month as well. So there you go. That is this week's show, 302. Do listen next week for part two of Ian Seal's story, Adrift on the Sea of Rains, which is just fantastic. Thank you so much, Ian, for that. Big thank you to everyone. Big thank you to Adam as well. And uh, we'll, we'll get everything sorted out for next week and get that on. And did anybody notice the little hiccup last week? I just kind of thought about it there. Yeah, well, no. Well, if you didn't, you didn't. But have a listen to it. See if you do notice a rather, rather, rather big hiccup in last week's show. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.